0: Chapter 27 Knights and Squires Stubb was the second mate. He was a native of Cape Cod, and and hence, according to local usage, was called a a Cape Codman. A happy-go-lucky, neither craven nor valiant, taking perils as they came with an indifferent air, and while engaged in the most imminent crisis of the chase, toiling away, calm and collected as a journeyman joiner engaged for the year. Good-humored, easy, careless, he presided over his whale boat as if the most deadly encounter were but a dinner, and his crew all invited guests. He was as particular about the, the comfortable arrangement of his part of the boat as an old stage driver is about the smugness of his box, when close to the whale, in the very death lock of, of the fight, he handled his unpitying lance coolly and, and off-handedly, as a whistling tinker his hammer. He would hum over his old rig tunes while flank and flank with the most exasperated monster. Long usage had for this stub converted the jaws of death into an easy chair. And what he thought of death itself, there's no telling. Whether he ever thought of it at all might be a question, but if he ever did chance to cast his mind that way after a comfortable dinner, no doubt like a good sailor he took it to be a sort of a call of the watch to tumble aloft and bestir themselves there about something which he would find out when he obeyed the order, and not sooner. What, perhaps with other things, made Stub such an an easy-going, unfearing man, so cheerfully trudging off with the burden of life in a world full of grave peddlers, all bowed to the ground with their packs? What helped to bring about that almost impious good humor of his, that, 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 that thing must have been his pipe? For like his nose, his short, black, little pipe was one of the regular features of his face. You you would almost as soon have expected him to turn out of his bunk without his nose as without his pipe. He kept a whole row of pipes there, ready loaded, stuck in a rack within easy reach of his hand, and whenever he turned in, he smoked them all out in succession, lighting one after the other from the end of the chapter, then loading them again to be in readiness anew. For when Stubb dressed, instead of first putting his legs into his trousers he put his pipe into his mouth I say this continual smoking must have been one cause at least of his peculiar disposition for everyone knows that this this earthly air whether ashore or aloft, is terribly infected with the nameless miseries of the numberless mortals who died exhaling it and is in time of the cholera some people go about with a camphorated handkerchief to their mouths So likewise, against all mortal tribulations, Stubbs, tobacco smoke, might have operated as a sort of disinfecting agent. The third mate was Flask, a native of Tisbury in uh, Martha's Vineyard, a short, stout, ruddy young fellow, very pugnacious concerning whales, who somehow seemed to think that the great Leviathans had personally and hereditarily affronted him, and therefore it was a sort of point of honor with him to destroy them whenever encountered. So utterly lost was he to all sense of reverence for the many marvels of their majestic bulk and mystic ways, and so dead to anything like an apprehension of any possible danger from encountering them, that in his poor opinion the the wondrous whale was but a species of magnified mouse, or at least water rat, requiring only a little circumvention and some small application of time and trouble in order to kill and boil. This ignorant, unconscious fearlessness of his made him a little waggish in the matter of whales. He followed these fish for the whales for the fun of it. And a three-year's voyage round Cape Horn was only a jolly joke that lasted that length of time. As a carpenter's nails are divided into wrought nails and cut nails, so mankind may be similarly divided. Little Flask was one of the wrought ones, made to clinch tight and last long. They called him Kingpost on board of the Pequod because in form he, he could be well likened to the short, square timber that uh, known by that name in Arctic Whalers, and which by the means of many radiating side timbers inserted into it, serves to brace the ship against the icy concussions of those battering seas. Now, these three mates, Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask, were momentous men. They it was who, by universal prescription, commanded three of the Pequod's boats as headsmen. In that grand order of battle in which Captain Ahab would probably marshal his forces to descend on the whales, these three headmen were as captains of companies, or, being armed with their long keen wheeling spears, they were as a picked trio of lancers, even as the harpooners were flingers of javelins. And since in this famous fishery each mate or headsman like a gothic knight of old is always accompanied by his boat-steerer or harpooner, who in certain conjunctures provides him with a fresh lance when the former one has been badly twisted or elbowed in the assault, and moreover, as there generally subsists between the two a close intimacy and friendliness, it is therefore but meet that in this place we set down who the Pequod's harpooners were and to what headsman each of them belonged. First of all was Queequeg, whom Starbuck, the chief mate, had selected for his squire. But Quequeg is already known. Next was Tashtigo, an unmixed Indian from Gayhead, the most westerly promontory of Martha's Vineyard, where there still exists the last remnant of a village of red men which has long supplied the neighboring island of Nantucket with many of her most daring harpooners. In the fishery, they usually go by the generic name of Gayheaders. Tashtigo's long, lean, sable hair, his high cheekbones, and black, rounding eyes. For an Indian, Oriental in their largeness, but Antarctic in their uh, glittering expression. All this sufficiently proclaimed him an inheritor of the unvitiated blood of those proud warrior hunters who, in quest of the great New England moose, had scoured bow in hand the aboriginal forests of the Maine. But no longer snuffing in the trail of the wild beasts of the woodland, Tashtigo now hunted in the wake of the great whales of the sea, the unerring harpoon of the sun fiddling, fitly replacing the infallible arrow of the sires. To look at the tawny brawn of his lithe, snaky limbs, you would almost have credited the superstitions of some of the earlier Puritans, and half believed this wild Indian to be a son of the prince of powers of the air. Tashtigo was stubbed the second mate's squire. Third among the harpooners was Dagoo, a gigantic, coal-black Negro savage with a lion-like tread. And I swear us to behold! Suspended from his ears were two golden hoops so large that the sailors called them ring bolts and would talk of securing the topsail halyards to them. In his youth, Dagoo had voluntarily shipped on board of a whaler lying in a lonely bay on his native coast. And never having been anywhere in the world but in Africa, Nantucket, and the uh, pagan harbors most frequented by whalemen, and having now led for many years a bold life of the fishery and the ships of uh, of, uh, owners uncommonly heedful of what manner of men they shipped, Dagou retained all his barbaric virtues, and erect as a giraffe, moved about the decks in all the pomp of six feet five in his socks, there was a corporeal humility in looking up at him, and a, a white man standing before him seemed a white flag coming to beg truce of a fortress. Curious to tell, this imperial negro, Asuerus Dagu, was the squire of Little Flask, who looked like a chessman beside him. As for the residue of the Pequod's company, be it said that at the present day not one in two of the many thousand men before the mast employed in the American whale fishery are Americans born, though pretty nearly all the officers are. Hence, herein it is the same with the American whale fishery as with the American army and military and merchant navies and the engineering forces employed in the construction of the American canals and railroads. The same, I say, because in all these cases the Native American liberally provides the brains, the rest of the world as generously supplying the muscles. No small number of these whaling seamen belonged to the Azores, where the outward-bound Nantucket whalers frequently touched to augment their crews from the hardy peasants of those rocky shores. In like manner, the Greenland whalers, sailing out of Hull or London, put in at the Shetland Islands to receive their full complement of the crew. Upon the passage homeward, they dropped them there again. How it is, there's no telling, but, but islanders seem to make the best whalemen. They were nearly all islanders in the Pequod. Um, isolatos, too, I, I call such, not acknowledging the common continent of men, but each isolato living on a separate continent of his own, yet now federated along one keel. What a set these isolatos were, an anarchist cloot's deputation from all the isles of the sea and all the ends of the earth, accompanying old Ahab in the Pequod to lay the world's grievances before that bar from which not very many of them ever come back. Black little Pip, he never did, oh no, he went before, poor Alabama boy. On the grim Pequod's foc'sle ye shall ere long see him beating his tambourine, prelusive of the eternal time, when sent for to the great quarter-deck on high he was to bid strike in with the angels and beat his tambourine in glory. Call a coward here. Hail the hero there.